You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. I think that Oliver is, yes, it's a golden age musical, but it pushes into that Les Miserables world where you can have all of these flawed characters and still be rooting for them all the way through this long journey. It's, yeah. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are discussing the musical Oliver! which was a listener request from both Mark and Ian. Mark wrote to us and said, quote, I would love to hear a podcast on the musical Oliver. It was the first musical I performed at 10 years old and was obsessed with that show. It's still a favorite of mine. If you can make that happen, it would make my day, unquote. Well, Mark, consider your day made. And then Ian wrote, My daily full-time life is that of a parent of two and running a commercial real estate investment business. However, I get great joy out of musical theater, acting, and singing almost more than anything at this point in my 40-year-old life, other than the joy for my children. This is something that has been planted within me when I performed in a community theater production of Oliver with my son just a few years ago. It changed me forever, and I am thankful for the impact it has had on me and consequently on my children. Are you kidding me? That's the cutest freaking thing. Gives me the chills. Thank you. Thank you for writing in. I'm so grateful you both requested Oliver, and I I hope you enjoyed this episode. Here, as my special guest, is another big fan of Oliver. He is a gifted performer, an author, and a YouTube star. His channel, Tasting History, has 1.34 million subscribers. I checked that this morning, by the way. Crazy. Incredible. Everyone, please welcome Max Miller. Mm, Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here, especially to talk about one of my favorite shows ever. Okay, it really is one of your favorite shows ever? It is one of my favorite shows ever, yeah. Okay, haven't seen Oliver in on stage. Oh. Well, you know what? Isn't that crazy? That that might be a good thing because there are it is often not done well. <laughs> it's one of those shows. You know, there are a lot of shows like Grease and you know, just a lot of those shows which are are not done well. Yeah. It, it can be very very slow moving if it's if it's not directed well. I get you. I get you. Right off the bat, tell us about Tasting History, because it's obviously going to come up with a show that has an opening number entitled Food, Glorious Food, right? (laughs) Um, So Tasting History is my YouTube channel. And each episode, I find an old recipe from history that could be the 1920s, 1930s, Titanic, 
Victorian England, going all the way back to ancient Rome and ancient Babylon 4,000 years ago. Um, and then I make the recipe in my kitchen, doing the best I possibly can. Um, and then I talk about the history of sometimes that dish or an ingredient in that dish or something to do with the people who ate it, the culture, the, you know, a story that ties into it. What I love about musical theater is that it becomes a, a window into understanding culture and people. Yeah. And I think what you've proven is food can absolutely be that as well. Yep, absolutely. I would love to say that I come from a long line of delicious cuisines, but like the truth of the matter is my people were farmers. They've always been farmers. And so like boiled carrots and potatoes are really as interesting as it gets. Yeah, but you know what? That's delicious. Uh, you know, you look at a lot of historic food and it's like, well, this is very boring. It's boiled meat and, and beans or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's delicious. So sure. <laughs> who cares sure. if it's boring? Now we'll talk about boring food, I'm sure, yes. like gruel. But before that, talk to me about your history with Oliver. So as your one of your viewers at least mentioned, um, I was introduced to Oliver very young. It's one of my first musicals um, that I ever sang in. And it was more of a review of Oliver, actually. Uh, I was oh. nine oh. and... <clears throat> we did That's young by the way yeah so we did all of the songs from oliver but not the book you know it was it was really just the songs and i was oliver and it was my first solo in front of people that i remember i, I may have done so, but that was that was it gosh i may have even been eight but i think i would probably just turn nine um and so sweet that same year my, my mom was a high school teacher and that same year her high school was doing the show and you know i'm i thought that that was just the most amazing thing and now looking back on it, it was probably your standard high school production but to a nine-year-old it was broadway i mean it was phenomenal and ever since i i've really enjoyed it when i got older because i kind of didn't listen to it for a long time you know but then when i got older and i started listening to cast albums i bought the 1994 london cast album that has Jonathan Price as Fagin. Mm -hmm. And it to this Cameron day, I think McIntosh. is, yes, Cameron McIntosh. I think it's the best version of the show, uh, at least that's on a recording. Mm. Um, every performance is phenomenal. And, and it was like, I was reintroduced to this music, but through the ears of someone who had been now performing for years and, and really knew a lot, of, a lot more about music and, and everything. And it held up. And I just, I just love the score. And that actually inspired me to go read the novel. It was the first Dickens novel I ever read. I was in ninth grade. I still remember I read it on a family trip to Flagstaff. And now it's ingrained in my brain because while I was reading it, we heard that Princess Diana had died. Oh my gosh. And so now whenever I think of Oliver, I think of Princess well, Diana and vice versa. So it's it just has this weird like thing in my head and and um it it actually inspired my love of Charles Dickens who, who is now one of my favorite authors. So Oliver led me down a lot of paths that um very few shows have, I guess. So I'm so impressed by you. It really does make me feel like just an uneducated little twit like, because like <laughs> i haven't read a charles dickens novel i haven't 
I that's what my musicals are for. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's amazing though. I love that. I love that. Oliver is such an interesting piece to me because it is an outlier in many ways. It was a hit that completely embraced and understood the golden age, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe musical form, but it didn't come from America. And you had experimental stuff in, in the 1960s, like Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, other Anthony Newley type musicals from, from the UK. By the way, Stop the World was the same Broadway season as Oliver. Wow. But but it was a little bit more minimal, a little bit more experimental. This was a full-fledged musical. And then, of course, once the 80s come along and the art form starts shifting with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh doing, you know, Cats and Phantom of the Opera and you know, all of the, the musicals that we now look as the British Invasion, then things completely change. But for a while, Oliver was the British American musical. Yep. It was also an outlier in a couple of other ways that I want to discuss here right at the top. Number one, it was the first successful musical adaptation of a Charles Dickens novel. So let's start with him. Charles Dickens, what do you love about him? You just said he's your favorite author, and I'm curious. Because those are long books. They, they are long books. He was pretty much paid by the word. Um, and the way that he published was serial. So... He didn't publish a little book. bit published it was at a, a few time. chapters each each month. Yeah. So, you know, it was more you have to think of it more like a soap opera. And that's why I love them, because they are like a soap opera. The stories are outrageous. They are detailed. The, the characters, just their names, you know, um, their names are fantastic. And totally. today totally. in literature and movies, a lot of our tropes are taken from Charles Dickens and, and his character development. What seems to us to be very stereotypical was brand new when Charles Dickens created it. And mm. uh, that's, I just, his whole world building is fantastic. He is, to me, he's one of the first, even though he's not a fantasy writer in any way, he is one of the first kind of fantasy world builders. He can mm. put you in London in, you know, 1835 or Paris in the 1790s far better than most authors of that period w were doing. And partly it was because he had so many words to do it in and, and took his time. And he'll spend literally a page talking about what the knock on a door sounded like. Oh um, and he just paints with those words. And sometimes it's a little tedious, but if you love the language and, and you just kind of get over that, you can immerse yourself in him. He was also, from what I understand, a social critic. And oh, yes. I, can't, I can't help but feel <laughs> that so much of that comes from his childhood. Uh, Dickens left school around the age of 12 to work in a factory because his father was incarcerated in, in like a debtor's prison where he had all of this debt. And so then you get sent to a prison to work off your debt. And the hard part about often being in debtor's prison was you actually couldn't work to pay off your debt. You had to have family and friends who were willing to work on the outside to pay off your to debt and pay get you that out. Debt. So it, you're it just horrific. in a prison. Yeah. That is a rigged system if I've it ever really heard was. one. And so 
Isn't it insane that one of our greatest literary fiction writers of all time, kind of uneducated? Yeah. That's huge. He was definitely but, an autodidact. He, he taught himself everything. <laughs> and uh, the, you mentioned that he was you know, published serially. And in 1836, the Pickwick Papers becomes this huge phenomenon. And that was his first big success. And what I didn't realize is that Oliver Twist, which is what Oliver is, is based on, was number two. Like it's yeah. right at the beginning one, of his career. One of his first books. Now, There's actually a wonderful musical based on the Pickwick Papers too. Yes, Pickwick. Pickwick. Does it have an exclamation point too? I sure hope so. I think it does, actually. I think the musical <laughs> does. The, the The title of the book is The Complete Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Society. That was oh too long gosh. for the marquee, so they just changed it to Pickwick. <laughs> I love it. I love it. it. It's interesting that in musical theater, we can say that the names are too long, so we just have to shorten and add an exclamation point. And yet at the same time as Oliver came out, we had a funny thing happen on the way of the forum, forum. and stop the world I want to get off. Right. So like, we are not consistent, but, <laughs> uh, but I love, I love the, the energy and enthusiasm. So Oliver comes out, huge success for him. And what, is, what do you feel is the social commentary that he's getting at with Oliver? There are lots of things, but it's uh, like many of his books, it shows the lower classes of London, the struggling classes in conflict with the upper class. There were, you know, other stories that dealt with the lower classes, but he always brings those two worlds together and shows the clash and shows how one treats the other. And mm. often what's interesting is he doesn't make it clear that one is good and one is bad. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, the people might be very good and bad, but the actual society usually isn't. There are good and bad on, um, you know, in each group. And that's one reason why his stuff is so interesting is that except for very few characters in his writings, they are all flawed. I mean, you've got someone like Nancy who, you know, she's a prostitute and, you know, has battered wife syndrome and yet you you love her. And, you know, except for Bill, Bill is kind of just, Plain He's old pretty bad, evil. But yeah. Everyone else, Fagin and the Artful Dodger. 100%. What I think is so smart about the musical adaptation of this is that it capitalizes on the optimism and heart of musical theater to showcase exactly what you're talking about. That these are poor people who are struggling, but are also pretty happy. Yeah. You know, when they are not worried about dying or eating, they're actually having a pretty great time. Right. And I don't mean that in a jarring way. It's not like, oh, I'm so hungry. Let's sing a song about it. It's it's actually more of like life sucks, but hey, it's a fine, fine life. Yep. And I find that so inspiring and, and really beautiful because never once do I feel the author looking down on these people. Never once do I feel the author trying to manipulate our sympathies for them. These are people who are trying to be happy with what they have and are being super scrappy in their way of survival, which is why I think America loved it so much because we are a country made up yeah. of scrappy beggars. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. 
And so here comes a story full of characters who are going against the tide a little bit, who are paving their own way, who are trying to live life because they want the freedom to live their own life and all of the consequences that come along with it. It feels, like I said, a very British American musical. Yeah. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm trying to think before before this. Obviously, musicals were almost always based on novels and plays and you know th mm -hmm. they were rarely original material but there aren't that many that i can think of from that time that are based on something so unbelievably popular that had already been made into a half dozen movies that had done really well in in mm. america as well as england that you know everybody knew the story and it's like by the 80s and gosh, by like the year 2000 when we've got Legally Blonde and, and 9 to 5 and stuff, that's all that musicals would yeah. be based on. But here it's like, you know, it's not the kind of off the beaten path novels and plays of Rodgers and Hammerstein that they're using as source material. It's like, nope, we're doing something that is tried and true and everyone Brand knows it. And recognition. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it works. It works. Yeah. And while there have been other musical adaptations of, you know, Dickens novels, Christmas Carol, obviously, right. there are other ones that have not been as successful. Uh, Tale of Two Cities, you know. Yeah. Pickwick. So Sure, Pickwick. So why do you think this one works? Um, I, think it, I think it's the score, first I, of all. It's the music. Every, every single song is, is fantastic. Uh, there are some that don't work as well outside of the musical. Um, you know, My Name, that Bill Sykes sings. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't listen to that and hum that walking down sure. the street. But within context of the show, it is haunting. You are scared of this character. And he can't do all of the things on stage that he does in the book to make you hate him so much. And so it takes a song to get that across and i think not it does easy that by the way so not well. easy to have an, a villain sing a song yeah, that, not, yeah and and you're supposed to hate him because of it right yeah no i the score in from from beginning to end is i want to say flawless yeah it's it's pretty fantastic so let's talk about the guy who wrote it and this brings us to yet another piece of what makes this musical so special it's book Music and lyrics are all by one person, Mr. Lionel Bart. Yes. There are a few others in musical theater history, obviously Meredith Wilson from Music Man, most recently Michael R. Jackson from A Strange Loop, but they are very rare that somebody writes the entire thing. Um, it's even more rare that that person doesn't read music. 
<laughs> Lionel Bart uh, couldn't read music, and so the oh, way wow. that he wrote this musical was he would hum the the song to a friend, write down the lyrics, but but it was really up to somebody to transcribe kind of the genius in his brain onto the paper. He also wrote the dialogue and and drew out these characters and adapted them from a very long book and uh, did so brilliantly. It's yeah. somebody who I think just instinctively understood the art form because once again, not a lot of education, not a lot of experience in, in writing American musical theater, but whatever he was swimming in, you know, seeped into his pores and he just kind of gave birth to something perfect. Yeah. No, it's true. I didn't realize that he, he couldn't read music because he wrote a lot of pop songs and, and everything. Mm-hmm. So that's really, yeah, really uh, interesting. From Russia with Love, right? Yeah. Yeah. The From the James Bond film. He, of course, had this gigantic hit of Oliver in his belt and then continued to write a lot of songs. He also became quite a party boy. And there was a point where his party life kind of exceeded that of his career. He tried to write a couple of other musicals later down the line, including a very famous flop called La Strada. Right. I think it had one performance or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a legendary flop. Bernadette Peters was in it. And he invested a lot of his own money into making into making these productions happen and, of course, lost all of it. So he was pretty destitute. And the, as the story goes, he sold all of the rights to Oliver for, what, like 250 pounds? Yeah. He, uh, so Past sad. and future rights to, like, the one musical that actually would make him money. Because he went, he went bankrupt. Yeah. It was rough. And w- what's crazy is uh, some of those rights ended up down the line falling into Cameron McIntosh's lap, which is why he produced the musical. It's a, it's kind of a sad story because he seemed to be, like I said, a natural talent. It, it also makes me think about how things may have been different if he would have been able to be gay and open and because I know he was also closeted and I'm sure that didn't help the drug use, you know, that that sort of thing. Yeah. It always makes me wonder what if. Yeah, because, I mean, gosh, do we listen to any other musical from Lionel Bart today? I feel like this is the one. This is it. But, I mean, what a show. Yeah. It opens in England and... David Merrick, we've talked about him on the podcast before, the 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 abominable, the abominable showman, <laughs> whichever, however you want to think of him. He sees it and thinks that it would be great to bring to New York. He expands it. It was originally orchestrated for, I think, 16 pieces or something. That he expands it hmm. to 23, blows it up into a much bigger Broadway production. He also recasts the lead actor, uh, who played Fagin, Ron Moody. That role was played on Broadway by Clive Ravel. The reason why that part was recast was because he was afraid that Ron Moody's performance would be offensive to Broadway. Because Fagin has been a bit of a stereotype, yeah. uh, a harmful stereotype. Is that fair? Oh, a- absolutely. And And the musical tones it so far down, you wouldn't even know. Uh, in the novel, he is referred to as Fagin far less than he is referred to as simply the Jew. And oh 
for all the love of Charles Dickens you have, he he was a product of his time, most definitely, and mm -hmm. had a lot of negative feelings toward a lot of different groups. And one of them that crops up in a lot of his books is the, the Jewish community of London. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the stereotypes that are associated with that community are put on Fagin in spades, uh, wow. you know, and it can be played that way. He's such a sympathetic character in the musical. And Truly. that's the other thing. It's, and that's one of the reasons that Dickens is so interesting is because he's a sympathetic character in the book as well. Hmm. So here's this, you know, yes, here are all these bad stereotypes, but he doesn't make him into a villain. He's mm. even in the book. He's he's everyone's favorite character, and mm. it, it is a lot darker than the musical. Obviously, mm. um, the book is, but you still like him. Do you think that this story follows some of the same tropes, and I don't mean that in a bad way, of fairy tales? Because what you know, what is it with stories about children being so dark from a very specific time? So many of our fairy tales that involve children were just incredibly dark, but they also served, a, I think, a psychological purpose. Yeah. D does Oliver follow that at all, do you think? I don't know. Um, I mean, yes, it does. And, and I'm trying to think. Dickens actually uses children a lot in his novels sympathetically. You sympathize with a child because they're yeah. a child, you know? And, and so it's kind of an automatic, I don't, I don't need to make you feel for this person, feel for them because they're eight years old and mm -hmm. living alone and having to run, you know, across the country uh, away from horrible people. That's interesting. I also know that a big part of fairy tales is this idea that even through all of the scary, the universe is conspiring for your good. Yeah. And so much in Dickens stuff, like God's looking out for you, all, all of the stuff that you do not see happening in the details is all going to come together to make everything okay. Always. Oh, sometimes to a ridiculous degree from sure. our perspective. <laughs> Maybe yeah. in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, it wasn't felt that way. But now when you read something like uh, Nicholas Nickleby or, or Oliver Twist, and he just happens to be taken in by this kind old rich man who just happens to be a long lost relative who just mm -hmm. happens to, you know, sh right. it, there's a lot of that happening. And I, I think that not everyone in his books gets a happy ending, but I mm. think every one of his books does have a happy ending. I can't think of one. He was definitely the eternal optimist, even though, you know, he saw the worst that was going on in in England at the time and and showcase that hmm. at the end of the story it all turns out for the best that's cool Oliver is a hit on Broadway it runs almost 800 performances huh. it becomes a movie in the late 60s it wins so many Academy Awards I forget how many Academy Awards Oliver won yeah. it's the last musical to win Best Picture until Chicago. Really? Wow. It was really following this line of My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, American in Paris, all of these musicals winning Best Picture. And, and Oliver really is the end of that era. Right. Do you like the movie? I do. Um, Ron Moody's back to playing Fagin, by the way, when the movie yes, comes out. Yes, and, and he's wonderful in it. And he's fantastic. Um, I also just love the production design of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's so well done. 
I can't recall now, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but I feel like I watched the movie several times. And so when I was reintroduced to the stage show, there were several songs that they had cut out that I really missed. And I can't recall exactly which those are. It might be Oom Papa. I'm not sure if that's in the movie. I can't remember, but... My name is one of them, for sure. Yes, they decided name. Bill Sykes <clears throat> not yeah. going to sing in the movie. Um, but I feel like there were several that were taken out. And I was like, oh. Like, I think is I Shall Scream is taken out. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, which is one of my favorites. Granted, it does not move the plot along. So it, it's fine to take out from that perspective. And mm-hmm. for a movie, you know, you might want, want to do that. But I think if it's ever taken out on stage, it's a real shame because it's a, it's a charming song. And once again, shows the complexity of these characters. Exactly. Cause... Because Mr. Bumble is not a wholly evil person. He's just trying to do his job right. well, in a and, very difficult situation. Yeah, and uh, somebody who we would look down upon and yet also see ourselves in because he's also trying to woo a lady and then also yeah. getting stuck in an unhappy marriage. Like There are relatable aspects of yeah. each of these people, yeah. no matter what social class you may find yourself in. Yeah. Well, let's talk through the show. I'm really excited to talk through this one. The show begins with an army of children, which always like a, a disaster, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's usually a very expensive <laughs> right? Thing to do. <laughs> we love kids. Food, glorious food. We're in this factory populated by children, and they are going to breakfast? Yeah. Lunch, or something maybe, like that? Maybe they're one meal. Yeah. Uh, oh, sure. The, Thank you. Day. Usually, they usually they did get two. Um, but the workhouses of England were were actually very diverse, and some were not that bad. But mm. Dickens shows the worst of the worst. These these workhouses meant for children mm. and living terrible lives. What kind of children would be in these? Are Most, they all orphans or so? Mostly orphans. However, what it was more often was that they had a mother. Um, sometimes a father, but usually they had a mother, the father had left, and the mother and child are now destitute. And so the mother has two options. One is to essentially sell the kid. It was not legal then, but there were kind of ways around it. Or they go into the workhouse. And so the mother would often be in a workhouse as well, but usually not together. There are times when they could be, but very often they would be separated. And there kind of are, like Les Mis. Yes, exactly. Of. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these stories of this happening. It was, it was a definite problem. Um, mm. But you have to think, the workhouse was an effort to make it so that they could eat, so that they weren't starving on the street, because that's what would have been happening before the workhouse. So even though now we look back and say, oh my God, it was terrible, and it was for many people, it was actually designed as a mercy to to stop homelessness that was the intention and 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 often and often it was played out properly and often it was not and that's what dickens is is right chooses to focus on yeah as they're marching in to get their meal they're dreaming of all of the things that they could be eating which i just love so much the things that lionel bart 
brings to our attention are just so visceral hot sausage and mustard cold jelly and custard peaches and cream like just really painting the picture for us it's like the first uh, time that i had heard a, about a lot of these weird english foods of yeah victorian sure. <laughs> england especially it's like what cold jelly totally different from what we would call jelly you know um, absolutely yeah no i love it we could talk about food all day so <laughs> talk to me about gruel though what <clears throat> yeah. what on earth is gruel so, yeah, that's what they end up getting is, is yeah. gruel. And there were lots of types of gruel. Gruel goes back to the Middle Ages. It really is just a porridge. And it could be made very fancy with sugar and alcohol in it and meat even. Mm. Um, but what Oliver was probably eating was what's known as water gruel. And that is simply barley or sometimes oats mixed with water so it's like oatmeal yeah i was gonna say like when oatmeal hasn't completely absorbed the water yet yeah well and it's usually a lot more watery like maybe today yeah. you'd put like a quarter cup of oatmeal and a cup of water that would be sure. like a quarter cup of oatmeal and a half gallon of water you know <laughs> oh, it's shoot. you're you're mostly getting water here and one thing that was often done so they'd make the gruel and then they would strain out the oats and use those to make another pot. And so really what you're getting at the end of the day is water that is fortified with some of the residue from the oats or barley. Um, and that's often what water gruel was. And it was something that was made for invalids, uh, which is what they called sick people back then. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was something that went down easily, easy to digest, but it could also be what you got in prison and stuff but also any calories whatsoever. It, that sounds like celery yeah. water, you know? Like, yeah. I don't I understand mean, how that's supposed to give you any energy whatsoever. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it wouldn't, or, or give you very, very little. Mm -hmm. But I think in the musical, that's usually what they show is just a basic oatmeal. It's like a porridge, very gotcha. bland. They wouldn't be adding sugar. They wouldn't probably even add salt or anything butter bland, but it fills you up. Yeah. He wanted more. So it couldn't be that bad. Is it could be... <laughs> Don't feel bad for Oliver. <laughs> he wanted seconds. So he thought it was delicious. <laughs> I mean, that brings us to the moment of the yeah. story. Yeah, which it is, is the inciting event. The audacity <clears throat> of this young child who's just finished his gruel after Food Glorious Food to go up to Mr. What's-His-Bucket? Mr. Bumble. Bumble. And say, please, sir, I want some more strategic and radical and brilliant of Mr. Charles Dickens. Yes. Because how dare this child, <laughs> right? The audacity. And this is not an irrelevant thing for us nowadays. I no. hear it consistently. How dare you younger generation? Right? The entitlement. How dare you ask for more? Why, when I was younger, I had one spoonful of gruel. You're <laughs> I was lucky. happy for it. What is that? He gets his, what is his that? Due punishment. You know what? I think it's bad memories. You know, I think that we like to think that we were much better when we were kids than, than the kids are now, but we're the same. We're the it's, same. It's everybody's the same. It's just so relevant and beautiful and, and changes storytelling, I think, forever. Yeah. This, this one moment in this in huge epic story. So Oliver asks for more because he is, is so audacious. 
he is sold by Mr. Bumble to a funeral home. Before we go there, we, we do need to talk about one of your favorite songs. I shall scream. I shall scream. Yes. So we got we got Mr. Bumble who's running the factory. We've got Widow Cornell and he's trying to woo her. Yeah. And she's playing hard to get. But it's not that simple either. It's not just like Will Parker and Ado Annie. They're so they're such interesting characters where yeah. she's brassy and and uh loud but at the same time is feigning this uh, feminine, delicate femininity. I, it, yeah, it's I think she so wants to be. She wants to be the the damsel, and she is not. And you know, she's she, not. <laughs> yeah, she's more like the trunch 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 bowl. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's what she's more like. Except she doesn't want to be that. You know, right? Instead, she she wants to have her you know linen <clears throat> handkerchiefs. It's just such a fun character piece. Once again, coming from people who were just yelling at a child for wanting more right. gross porridge. Well, that's so, what's so. That's why I hate when that song is is not there because I think it's so important to have the the A B A of you know that opening scene and and the cruelty of them and bounce him, trounce him down the stairs, and then you have this very light and you get to see the other side of them when they're not at work, and mm-hmm. then. You go straight into Boy for Sale, which is one of the darkest <laughs> songs of musical theater history when you think about what is going on. Selling this child. Um, they do sell Oliver by the end of Boy for Sale to a funeral home, which is dark and I also find hilarious because like his one selling point is that he looks sad, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. And... <laughs> He'll make it like look at Paul Bear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or as though he's so deceiving with his looks that he can uh, get people to to buy products or have a, the the funeral experience that they're looking for. He's just a sad little boy who's hungry. Like that's right. the, that's the reality of the situation. Yeah. What are the names of the the funeral people? Mister, uh, is this Mister Sourberry? Sourberry, yeah. Um, and they have a wonderful song. That's your funeral. Yeah. Another great character piece. They have him sleep among the coffins. And this is the first time that we really get to hear from Oliver all by himself. And he sings the very well-known song, Where is Love? Which, is there any sweeter moment? Yes, but I think it's one of the hard... I think that, that Lionel Bart was cruel for writing that for a child because it is actually not an easy song to sing. Says Max, who sang it at yeah, eight or nine. First of all, it has a, a very wide range, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of melismatic work in it. It's slow, but for, for an eight or nine-year-old, that's not easy to do. And in the movie, this and several other songs, the boy who played Oliver, who has a really interesting later on life, um, really? he sang, but he had no training in singing and dancing. He sang, but the... The music director had to bring in his daughter to do some of the high notes because oh, sure. even as a little boy, he couldn't hit those high notes because wow. Lionel Bart wrote for, I think, a voice that doesn't exist. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, once again, he's <clears throat> he's just humming it to a pianist and without yeah. any knowledge of pedagogy right. or passagios or you know anything like that. Yeah. Um, That's really interesting. Definitely look up the kid who who played him. He might have become 
the sperm donor for Michael Jackson's children. Yeah, you didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> he dead. was best friends with Michael Jackson. I'm dead. The, the little boy who played Oliver in the musical. In the movie. In the movie. Yes. Later became, actually at a young age, became good friends with Michael Jackson. And they were about the same age, just a, about a month apart. And stayed good friends. And he was one of many donors for Michael Jackson's three children. They don't know if he was one of them who actually made it, but um, yeah. But he was a contestant. He was a contestant. See, the cultural footprint of Oliver is even bigger than <laughs> I expected. That's crazy. Yeah, so so where is love? I honestly don't think Lionel Bart was writing that song for a little boy. I think he was writing it for a gay man, personally. Yeah. But yeah. The next day, little Oliver meets Noah Claypole, who is an, an, another employee of the Sourberries at the funeral home. And he says some really inflammatory things about Oliver's mother, who obviously is gone, died, and had left him at workhouse, the, the workhouse. Yeah. And so Oliver uh, stands up for himself. Once again, how dare he <laughs> stand up for himself and really starts pummeling on this kid who's yes. much older than he is. So great. That little scrappy fighter just totally takes him down, and the sourberries come in and trap him and uh, trap little Oliver in a coffin because he's just completely out of control. And how on earth, in the process, he escapes and he runs into the streets. And now we come into this new chapter of Oliver's life on the streets. Uh, one of the first people that he meets is one of the most beloved characters of the entire piece, the Artful Dodger. How would yes. you describe this little kid? Far older than his years. He has, yes. he's been on the streets and he has learned how to survive by, you know, stealing and, and conning people, but he does it with such charm. And he clearly wants to be at a much higher station than he ever will be. He even dresses as if he is a gentleman, except that the clothes are it's tattered nice. and patchy, you know, yes. but it's just in his mind. Freaking most he's a gentleman thing. Yeah. Yes. He is the most dapper street urchin you'll ever meet in your life. Yeah. Truly the audacity of these characters is just so, <laughs> so endearing. He takes in Oliver and says, you can be part of our clan, like the clan that I belong to and sings yet another fantastic, perfect song, Consider Yourself. Yeah. I mean, truly, you say the title of the song and every musical theater person is at least going to know the first um, four bars. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, so it's great. one of those, I mean, th this show has so many great, huge numbers. You know, the, the, the chorus can be as big as you can afford essentially, mm -hmm. which I think is one of the reasons why it's often done with community theaters. Mm. It's like, we have 80 people who want to do this show. Perfect. Let's, Let's do, do all of her. Because <laughs> it's not just one or two big songs that they can be in. They can be in, you know, half of the show. And it also feels like a, the tradition of music halls from England, where you get your audience with a couple rounds of beer, and they're going to sing, you know, at least three choruses of Consider yeah. Yourself with you. Yeah all of these rousing sort of anthems. So the Artful Dodger takes Oliver to this this clan who's overseen by Fagin. Fagin, we've talked about him, but he's kind of created this little pyramid scheme, if you will, 
of pickpockets. He trains yeah. these little kids to steal, steal only enough to not be noticed. Right. And then everybody brings all of that together. And that's how they everyone survives. And he's been doing it for a very long time. So this is not a young whippersnapper of a, of a gentleman. He's no. old and weathered and also lovable. Yeah. He teaches Oliver how you do it in a song called You've Got to Pick a Pocket or Two. Great song. We also meet some other people who are maybe not necessarily in the clan, but adjacent to it. Most important being Nancy. Yes. You mentioned that she's a prostitute. So, yeah. So she actually probably got introduced to Fagin, uh, if I remember the book correctly, um, because she is married to someone who was in the clan, Bill Sykes. Mm. Interesting. Um, okay. So, he, yeah. So Bill was a protege of Fagin. Oh, And one of the dark things is... And th th he delves more into it in the book, but there are hints to it in the musical is, is the artful Dodger going to turn into this? And oh. Nancy, one reason why Nancy treats the artful Dodger so kindly is she doesn't want him to go down this path because she's already in the world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she, she leads a very dark life, except she is that optimism. She mm -hmm. probably has the worst situation of anyone of in this show. She's a prostitute. Her pimp is essentially her husband, Bill Sykes, who is has taken criminality to the next level. You know, he's a murderer. He is mm -hmm. he is dark and uh, abusive, physically abusive to her, her. Um, physically, and yet she's there singing "It's a Fine Life," and you know, uh, I'd do anything for you, and and. She is the quintessential prostitute with a heart of gold. Yeah. When, when we think of that, that is what Nancy is. And I, I was thinking about like the difference between this musical and, say, Carousel, when we were looking at Julie Jordan, someone who also uh, reacts in, in a similar way to domestic abuse and being in an abusive relationship, or even maybe Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors. With Nancy, you have somebody who can take care of herself. Yes. She is constantly surrounded by danger. And in the face of that darkness, like you're saying, she is choosing that life. Yeah. She is not a victim to it. And for whatever reason, she believes that this life is better than being a prisoner to the wealthy class. Right. Of needing to walk around with your nose in the air and look down on everybody. I would much rather be in the situation that I am in where I don't believe I'm better than anybody, but also I'll be hanged if I ain't just as good. You know what I mean? Yeah, she's, she's a fantastic character. And she honestly, my favorite songs in the show are, are her songs. And I think that that's why I love the 94 uh, Cameron Macintosh album the most, because it's one of the few times where they cast a perfect belter for mm -hmm. these songs and had the recording equipment 
to to do it justice because if you listen to some of the early recordings you can tell that the singer has the chops but the microphones don't have the chops to pick up a belter i mean it's like when you listen to ethel merman it's like i'm sure she's better than she sounds on these crackly old old uh recordings uh so in 1994 they had that ability and when she sings it's a fine life and i mean as long as he needs me later on they're transcendent that's so cool you talked about the relationship between Nancy and, and the Artful Dodger, and we get to see it on display here with another legendary song, I Do Anything, where she is playing into his fantasy of how the the rich act. Very playful. Um, you know, she knows that he's never going to be doing any of this stuff, of course. Mm. I mean, for, first of all, he's a little kid and she's a grown uh, she's probably, you know, in her mid-20s by now. Um, mm-hmm. What's interesting is even in this playful song, and it's done in a playful way, but there is a little bit of the darkness of their actual situation that comes in. You know, she says, uh, would you climb a hill, anything, pick a daffodil, anything, uh, something else, anything, or even fight my bill. What, fisticuffs? You know, and she brings Bill into the song the reality of it they're smiling about it but right there the fact that she brings him in in that way you can tell she is scared of him she knows what a horrible thing it would have to be for dodger to fight him you know Mm -hmm. and and so it's really interesting how the darkness always kind of creeps back in uh into all of these songs how do you make a vacation last How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. So as you were saying, which I didn't know, so Bill Sykes was a protege of Fagan. He's now become something of a monster. Yeah. I mean, he's so bad that if this had been written after 1888, you would say, oh, he's based on Jack the Ripper. Oh, But gosh. this was 50 you years so? before. I wow. mean, he's, he's, and like I said in the book, you know, obviously they go into more depth, but he's notorious. The police throughout London know him, everyone knows him, and he sings a song about his reputation, about how horrible he is. Um, You know, he's not a petty thief. He is a murderer, uh, a brute, and he will, he doesn't care if you're poor, rich, middle class, a policeman, doesn't matter. You need to be scared of him, and he revels in that. And is it fair to say that the police are looking for him? I think all the time. I ask because it plays a very important part in the second act 
this idea that Bill doesn't want anyone to know where he is and where he lives. Right. He has built this persona based on infamous notoriety and also a complete ability to disappear. Yeah, the police know know about him and everything, but his hands are clean because he is so good at his job because Fagan taught him to be so good mm. at deceit and, and hiding and everything. Um, and so later on when he does stuff that is a little bit more public, mm. then it does become a problem. The first act ends with Oliver going with the Artful Dodger on like a day's work of pickpocketing and he gets caught on the, his first day first day on the job, which is a huge problem for Fagan and the entire group because here's this new kid who they can't trust to be quiet. Right. They don't know if Oliver's going to spill the, the beans about where they live, who they are, and kind of how how far their reach is. So now in the second act, the big plot point is how do we get Oliver back? Not because we want to to save him, but because no. we want to save ourselves. Yeah. Fagin wants to to get him back to not spill the beans, but Bill will kill him. Ooh, right. Bill has no problem killing a child. Yeah. The the beginning of act 2 starts with a, a drinking song um papa. I just have to give shout out has some great funny lyrics. Such a great song. And then when Bill comes in, I think is this the first time we see Bill? Here we've been talking about him this entire time, but I, I think he doesn't actually I think enter until Act Two. Time. Yeah. And he tells Nancy that she needs to go get Oliver. She doesn't want to, but she ultimately agrees because he beats the crap out of her. Right. And then she sings As Long As He Needs Me, Such which, amazing song. I don't know, people might look at it as problematic, but I just think it's actually very honest. Uh, you know what, when you, it, yeah, maybe if you sang it now, it would be a little rather <laughs> problematic, but this was a different time. She was in a different place. And even now, uh, you can talk yourself into a lot of things. Sure can. You know, when when you have feelings for someone, you can you can put up with a lot, whether you should or shouldn't. That's that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But the song is, yeah, he's horrible. But if I wasn't here, he'd fall apart. Um, which makes it heartbreaking. It is because it is problematic that it does make it heartbreaking. You know mm. that she has deluded herself. That is. Huge. I love that perspective so much. If it wasn't problematic, it wouldn't be heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's the difference I feel between this and, and Carousel. Mm -hmm. Because in Carousel, it's not really seen as problematic. It's seen as, you know, oh, yeah, he hits me, but he does it out of love. The end. Whereas What's this is... What's the use is, of wondering? Yeah. Whereas this is, he hits me and... It's not in any way trying to say that that is a good thing. And yeah, the song is from the 19, well, uh, 58 or 59, but even in the book in the, in the 1830s, it was not okay. It was not, a, a you know. It was not okay to treat women this way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I think it's very different from how it's sometimes portrayed. It's beautiful. Now we meet up with Oliver. So what ended up happening was that he got arrested and then 
Well, so the the man who he pickpockets basically ends up kind of coming to his defense uh, along with someone who works for him. Because they see pity on him, a boy who's hungry and... They do. And someone during the trial, and I can't remember if it's it's her or someone else now, but during the trial, uh, they say it wasn't him. It was these other boys. He was just standing there. And so he gets arrested for something that he didn't do. And so the man who he had pickpocketed takes pity on him and, and brings him in. It just so happens that these people, when they look at him, they they keep thinking that he bears an, an awful close resemblance to their departed daughter, right. their daughter who's passed on. And so they feel that because he has that look, maybe that's also why they're being so sweet to him. He reminds them of their daughter. Right. This is when Oliver really does start to receive some love. He is fed. He is trusted. He's given uh, five pounds to take to a bookstore um, along with some books to to pay for them and to kind of settle the, the debt at this bookstore. So he's on his way to do that. And he is intercepted by Nancy, who is on this mission that she was given from Bill. She pretends to be his mother and says, oh, my son, I've been looking for you everywhere. She's doing this very publicly in front of everyone. And they, of course, scold him because he's this very disobedient boy who has obviously run away from his mom. And how dare he do that? He's trying to say she's not my mother and no one believes him. She takes him, leaves the books, takes the money, yeah. takes Oliver back to the clan, and then what happens? <laughs> oh, boy, I can't actually remember. I think Bill is there, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Sykes goes to, like, beat him up, right, to make sure that he never flees again or, uh, right. and, and definitely doesn't tell on them. Nancy steps in to try and save him. And there's this really kind of heated battle between the two. Sykes takes Oliver to make sure that he doesn't get away. Right. Nancy leaves. In fact, everybody leaves. And Fagin is left wondering, kind of considering what has led him to be here. Um, He's spent most of his life doing this. But what if maybe he changed his life to be an honest one? And he sings this amazing song called Reviewing the Situation, which... Sounds very different from the rest of the score. It has a lot of klezmer. It, it sounds very Fiddler on the Roof-like, if you want to think of it in those terms. Right. But a, a real 11 o'clock number. I love that it's given to Fagin. Yes. And I love that he really does struggle with this. Would it be better? Or, eh, no, actually, I'm doing all right. Maybe, maybe it's not <laughs> so good if I did this other thing. Because, I mean, he, he thinks like, oh, I would have become, you know, a a duke or something, you know, and had all of this responsibility. He's like, ugh, that's a lot of work. You know? Actually, <laughs> now that I think about it, it's it's fantastic. Uh, w- once again, makes us love this character even mm-hmm. more. <clears throat> now we go back to the workhouse, the, the, the place from the very beginning with Mr. Bumble and Widow Corny, who have now married. She did not scream, as it turns out. Right. And boy, oh boy, are they unhappily married. <laughs> it's not going well. And this dying pauper kind of alms, alms for a pitiful woman comes 
gives them this very important piece of information with an Annie locket. Boy, there's a lot of musicals coming all into yeah. this this one show. That Oliver's mother was this woman named Agnes who left a gold locket uh, when she when she died in childbirth, and this this pauper woman um, stole the locket, and now she's giving it to the widow Corny and Mr. Bumble with the the knowledge that she, the dead mom, was actually the daughter of the people that Oliver was with. Are you all following me? I hope so. <laughs> this is what I said. Like Dickens tends to like everything falls together and it's just so perfect and hunky-dory. This is yeah. what it's happening. <laughs> um, for for whatever reason, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. No, I, I'm, no. I'm totally with them. I'm like, wow, this is magical. The reason that this pauper woman is telling them this is because they are wealthy. So maybe they can get some more money. Reward, yeah. For knowing where Oliver <clears throat> is. Uh, unfortunately, they don't really know where Oliver is. Now, Nancy visits the place where Oliver was being rescued and confesses that she and Bill abducted Oliver and that she feels terrible about it and she believes that he belongs with them. So she is going to deliver him that night. Bill suspects that she's kind of up to something on that night that she sneaks Oliver out of Fagin's clan. And at the London Bridge, he confronts them. He uh, knocks Oliver unconscious and clubs Nancy to death. And so she dies right yeah. here, to- right before the end. It's really dark and really, really sad. This is also the moment where I'm like, community theaters do this? Yeah. And, and you know, because often deaths are not done on stage like this. And it is, you know, it's not a gunshot. It's, it's gruesome. It's gruesome. It's beating her and she's alive and stays alive. And he keeps shouting at her to close her damn eyes. Close your eyes, woman. Because she, now dead, her eyes are open and staring up at him. And he's... You know, whatever guilt he is capable of feeling, he is feeling it. In and that moment. It's, it is dark. Because he did it so publicly, this is when London turns on him. Yeah. Because everybody loved Nancy. We love Nancy. Right. And he's not going to get away with this. And he doesn't. He is caught because two policemen sneak up on him. One of them shoots him. And the other one grabs Oliver. The policemen return Oliver to the Brownlows, who, because of the people from the very beginning of the story, now realize that the little boy who was with them is actually their grandson. Yes. It's a lot of dark. It's a lot of light. It's a lot of life packed into one second act. Yeah. And it is. I mean, it, it, it's a dark show from the beginning, interspersed with a lot of you know light songs and and stuff mm-hmm. but that last part is it it gets really dark yeah a lot of people die <laughs> a do short you, period of time do you think that we're left after at the end of the show feeling optimistic because i i would i i feel like the magic and the miracle of him ending up with his grandparents is meant to send us out of the theater with a, a degree of hope yeah, I think so. Do you think so. it works? I think so. 
Um, I also think the, because the way that the musical ends, which is different than the book, in the musical, Dodger and uh, who, you know, they're all these kids, but really Dodger is the one kid that you really care about other than Oliver. He and Fagin get back together and go off into the sunset. Mm. And so you do have that uh, kind of happy ending even even for them. Because now they can go about what they feel like they were called to do, but without the looming threat of Bill Sykes, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, but even so, it's still, there is still a darkness to the end. But I do think it is, the audience is left feeling like, okay, Oliver is going to be fine. Mm. This is going to mm -hmm. be good for him, you know? And we can forget all the rest of, of London in the 1830s at this point. <laughs> and probably, probably best because it's a rough, rough place to live. Do you think this story eases the the guilt of the privileged or does it confront it? Um, maybe a little bit of both because I, I think it confronts it. And the only way that that guilt is is eased is to kind of do the right thing and acknowledge what is going on around them because it's Mr. Brownlow and the Artful Dodger in the same place they're living you know side by side and you know it's the fact that mr brownlow does take in oliver and everything granted he turns out to be family so there's that mm -hmm. but even so brownlow didn't know that when he took him in and and felt that guilt i only ask because i i agree with you i think that it presents it very objectively you know, of course, with a lot of warmth and a lot of darkness. Um, and that's why it feels objective. But having lived in Los Angeles and been surrounded by such a devastating homelessness situation, houselessness, and also continually hearing about, I mean, just this morning, I opened up my little email from the New York Times, and it was showing the huge disparity between like company stock prices and living wages and yeah. um and how those were kind of steadily growing with each other until the 80s and then and now it's just gone yeah, yeah. almost opposite directions and so i wouldn't want to have a conversation about oliver without thinking about the societies that we create and actively participate in and what what's good about them and what's a fine life and and also what are those dark places that we don't always like to shed light on but probably need to there is no simple answer but right. i do think that it probably begins with love i, I don't know am i am i being like too no, I think so. Idealistic well, to be like, love is the answer. But, I mean, I think <laughs> well, I have I to believe it begins there. You know? Acknowledgement is the answer or the, the first step. You know, you have to kind yeah. of admit yeah. that, that, that it is there. And I think that that's what in, in, in books like this and Nicholas Nickleby and, and Bleak House, that is what Dickens does. He acknowledges this disparity. I don't think he takes a firm moral stance. This is what needs to be done until A Christmas Carol which is mm. very wow interesting this is what you have to do this is you know it's it's a little more overt in its in its moral uh storytelling yeah um but even just acknowledging these different parts of society 
at, at that time was, was a very big thing. You look at someone like, you know, the other big, big authors of the time are, you know, the Bronte sisters, or uh, if you go back a little further, Jane Austen. I mean, I love Jane Austen, but the poor people in Jane Austen <laughs> are millionaires <laughs> compared to today. It's like, oh, they only have four servants and stuff, you know, and then so it's really the disparity between the wealthy and the uber wealthy. Those, mm. that's, the, that's the societal clash there. You don't even talk about the poor people. There are some other books that, that do ha deal with that, but they're very rare. Dickens mm -hmm. is one of the first to really bring that to the forefront with some popularity. You know, mm. it's like it, you can, you can uh, tell all the stories you want, but if nobody's reading them, then it doesn't really matter. So, yeah. and that's yeah. what Dickens did and, and, and kind of brought that. And there was actually, there were repercussions in part due to his writings, due to his bringing these things to the forefront, whether it was things being changed in the prison system and the debt system and the workhouse system and, and the food that was served there and everything. These aren't directly tied necessarily, but he brought this stuff up and put it out there into the public mind um, because a lot of people don't acknowledge that it even exists. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily willfully it's more of just out of sight out of mind but mm -hmm. he made it be in your sight no matter yeah. where you lived in england i mean you, people were reading these things and hearing these stories about people living very different lives than they were wow and once again one of the most powerful things about this musical is that they're not pitied yeah they are humans with lives that they've chosen and appreciate as well. So I often think that that has to be a big part of the solution as well, is that not everybody needs to have a life that looks like mine, uh, but everybody needs to have a life that's seen and noticed. Yeah. Max, thank you so much for doing this with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm glad that we got to do this. And when you sent me a list of musicals and I saw Oliver on there, I was like, oh, good, this one hasn't been covered. It was Aww. like, I was like, that and the Secret Garden would have been the two I would have <laughs> uh, maybe cabaret jumped on. So I'm really glad about that. I'm so glad that you picked this one. It's not a show that I think of when I think of musical classics, but I am leaving this conversation thinking a lot about it. So thank you for that. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, just like our friends Mark and Ian, be sure to email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on social media at a musical podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We've also got a TikTok. We have Patreon exclamation point. We also can go to our T Public store where we've got lots of amazing listener designs, and any of the profits we receive from that will be donated to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. Above all, thank you for being part of this podcasting community because truly it's one of the greatest gifts that I have by doing this show is getting to know and connect with all of you. Hey, Mr. Max, tell us about how we follow you and everything you're up to. Yeah, so YouTube is the best way to see me. Every week, every Tuesday, I do a video, um, Tasting History consistent, with Max Miller. Man. Pretty consistent, never missed a Tuesday. Uh, you know, Dang. go on there. Start with the Gruel episode where I talk about Oliver. 
Um, and then we'll I'm definitely also on, put that in the show notes. We'll put that right, in the show notes. Do it. Uh, I'm also on um, Instagram and Twitter, Tasting History with Max Miller. Search there and, and you'll find me. Amazing. Congratulations on all of your amazing success. Thank you for the all of the history that you're bringing us, thank for you. all the history you brought to this episode. I couldn't have done it by myself. So thank you. Ah, thank you. And, and congratulations on, on this show. I, I really enjoy listening to it. So oh, You're um, very kind. Thank you. I, I miss musical theater in my life. So this is a, a, a nice little tidbit. Musical theater misses you. Do you <laughs> sing on your show? Not really. No. Um, I, you should. I, I, I sing this mostly now for my cats. Um, where, <laughs> you know, I'll sing the entire score to Martin Gare, but change every single word to my cat's name. And they I love that. hate it. But and they, <laughs> that's all right. I feel you know, it. tough crowd. Yeah. I, I would love to see that, though, where you're like, look. <laughs> um, maybe. Maybe eventually. Eventually yeah. I'll bring it in. Everybody out there, thank you for listening. And uh, remember, consider yourself one of us. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.